We'll stop talking and or we'll start talking other stuff. Start start talking start talking uh, only Baver. Only uh, Only Baver. Only Baver time. That is name of your podcast only <laughs> talking baver 94 honestly i might I'm, yes! not I'm, I'm saying it out loud and i would wear that t-shirt okay yeah, that's good Uh, I guess thank you for tuning in to Talking Baver 94, the Star Wars podcast, devoted interviews with the host of This Week in Star Wars, the author of Skywalker, A Family at War, and Slash War, the associate editor of StarWars.com. I'm your host, Prana Winerdy, and today is a special episode with none other than Kristen Baver, celebrating the release of her newest book, The Art of Star Wars, The High Republic. This is a fantastic conversation, and I hope you all enjoy this is Talking Baver 94, Episode 1, Kristen Baver. What were your first experiences with the saga, and how did they impact you growing up? So I was kind of a latecomer to Star Wars, I think. Uh, I discovered it when I was about 10 or 11. I saw it for the first time, I think, on the Sci-Fi Channel. And I think it was the unedited version, because this was before the special editions. I know for sure I saw it at home before the special editions came out because I was ready for that. Mm -hmm. I had the action figures. I had, it was my moment. I was so excited to have those tickets. And I remember like very viscerally sitting in the theater and seeing Star Wars come up on the screen and feeling like, yes, this is how it was meant to be seen. And, you know, at the time I was discovering it and it was the perfect time to discover it because it was really getting some traction coming back. And then I was a huge fan. And yeah, there's just something about Star Wars that really, you know, kind of captured my imagination beyond some of the other things I'd been a fan of previously. I actually came into sci-fi more in the direction from Star Trek. Mm. I was watching Star Trek when I was four years old. TOS or what? What? Uh... TNG was my gateway. Okay into Star Trek. It was new then. Right. <laughs> and I would watch it with my dad in syndication. And we would sit on his recliner together and, and watch Star Trek. And Star Trek and, and Star Wars and just science fiction in general was something that my entire family just really got into. When I was nine, I went to my first convention and it was a Star Trek convention. And I met James Doohan, the original Scotty. Oh, yeah. Yeah. He signed a picture for me. And I have no idea what we talked about because I was nine and I have right. no memories of this. But my parents tell me he was extremely nice. And, you know, I just have such a more of like a sense memory of it than a mm -hmm. real memory. Like, I don't know what I said, what he said, but I remember feeling like, wow, he, he's here. And you're know, feeling like a little starstruck, but that he was just really kind and just like a, a regular person. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of those things kind of informed things, you know, going forward for me in terms of, I don't really get starstruck now. I, I tend to think, you know, I may have a lot of respect for a creator. I may be a huge fan of their work, but they're also at the end of the day, a regular person. And so I treat them as such. It is funny though, that I came in on TNG. TNG was the one that really spoke to me and that I watched a lot. And I was of course watching things like Reading Rainbow at the same time and Reading Rainbow and Star Trek The Next Generation happening at the same time for me and me being a preschooler and not really understanding how the world worked. It blew my mind when I realized that 
the man who played Jordy LaForge was also the man who was reading me books about like goats eating trash. Yeah. Bizarre and wonderful. Um, and just, you know, starts the mind like connecting all of these things that that uh, you know go together in the world. But we also we did watch a fair amount of the original series mm-hmm. as well. My mother was a much bigger fan of original series. My mother and my sister both actually are quite purists <laughs> to this day. With things. Yeah. Uh, they love the original. They tend to, you know, raise an eyebrow at any reboot or sure. sequel or you know, they don't trust it. And this is passed on to the next generation, actually. Now my niece, uh, she prefers Star Trek, the original series, to all other Star Trek now, too. Yeah. And I'm just like, please, child, give Strange New Worlds a chance. Yeah. I think you'll enjoy it. And yeah. she's like, I'm going to go rewatch an original series episode right now. Yes. I was like, okay. Star Trek show now. Uh, Talking Baver 94, <laughs> the, the premier Star Trek uh, podcast around. Besides Star Trek besides Star Wars. What else were you gravitating towards as you grew up and what were you reading? What were you watching? What were you enjoying? Something that has actually come up again for me this week when I was a little kid, I was a tremendous DuckTales fan. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And then I became a big fan of the reboot um, in time. Uh, I think I had that family reaction again, still where I was like, I don't know, could it be possibly as good as the original? And then I watched a few episodes and I was like, oh, it's arguably better (laughs) than the original. (laughs) Uh, there's a lot of there's a lot of love that goes into it and a lot that you thematically the the reboot does that I don't think the original version was too worried about but I just got the art of ducktales just in the mail yesterday uh, which reminded me just what a what a huge fan I was of of that show and you know just a, a lot of a lot of cartoons mm-hmm. uh you know as you are want to indulge in I think you know as a kid uh, as I got older, I got into reading a lot of other sci-fi, um, you know, some Asimov, some Heinlein, mm. things of that nature. I feel like I should have a more plentiful answer here. No, I mean, <laughs> you're, you, it's the three greats. It's DuckTales, Heinlein, and Asimov. I think <laughs> right? Yeah, that's the trifecta. The, yeah, I mean, you hit it. So. I know it's an obvious answer. Everyone probably <laughs> right, gives you that answer. Cliche, but yeah. Like, what makes you want to become a writer? Like, some people have writers and authors and things that they've experienced that then are like, oh, this is why I want to be creative. I had a moment or a period where I started writing stories um, and started writing fiction and started creating characters and making things up, uh, making up worlds and, you know, communities and all that and storylines. And I was about eight when I started doing that. And I don't think it was so much that I had authors that I looked up to or books that I was trying to replicate as much as I loved the experience of writing, the process Mm. of writing And I distinctly remember one weekend when I was about seven or eight and I was sitting at the kitchen table on a Sunday and I was writing a story about this stuffed animal monkey that I had (laughs) and just all of her escapades. And I was just like so laser focused on it. And I have no idea what was in the story now, although my parents never throw anything away. So it is arguably true that that lined paper still exists somewhere in my parents' basement. Uh, We could find out and it's probably horrifying. (laughs) bad it is but I remember just feeling so calm and focused and just in general I think my brain just kind of volleys all over um you know all kinds of different topics and tests and I should go over here and do this and I should nope wait what about this other thing I've forgotten to-do lists and sticky notes and all of those things that uh you know just compound as you get older and writing was always a place where I could just focus and all of that stuff kind of fell away and was pushed to the corners and hours could go by and I would have absolutely no idea um, 
So I, if I started writing when I was about seven or eight, when I was nine or 10, my mother realized that my brain couldn't keep up with the speed of my hand when I was <laughs> writing things down. And I was getting frustrated because I couldn't write fast enough to get all my ideas out. And she, we got a, a word processor. Um, we didn't get a computer first. We got an actual word processor, which was only a step up from a typewriter. But she taught me how to to uh, to use the keyboard and to to type out my stories then instead because I, I could be a lot faster in that way. And I still don't actually type properly in terms of like home row and all right. of those things you're supposed to do if you actually take courses on it. It's actually really weird. Like if you look at it, one of my hands, only one of my fingers goes and then the other one, all of them go. I have no idea <laughs> where it came from, but it's, it's probably from being like nine years old and just trying to bang out everything that was coming out of my head as quickly as humanly possible and just get it down and, and get it out. Uh, get it on the page. So yeah, it's it's interesting because I was I identified as a writer and was interested in writing before I actually discovered Star Wars. Mm -hmm. So for those two things now to coalesce uh, is fascinating because I think for a lot of people it's that they are Star Wars fans and then maybe they come to writing later. But for me, it's actually uh, a, it's the inverse. How did you build on that initial spark? Like, what was your education? How did you you know start doing your first? jobs and how did you start building this career like as a journalist and as a writer to to go all the way back to that initial spark the two major things that helped with that were having parents who supported that and you would look at that activity and hobby and say yes this is valuable you should be spending your time right. you know sitting alone in a computer room writing stories <laughs> to yourself that sounds like a good idea uh, they were tremendously supportive. And I also had teachers who I think when you're that age, like eight, nine, 10, you tend to start trusting the teachers a little bit more than you trust your parents. And like you're, you're on to your parents being like, whatever you do is fine. I love you no matter what. Whereas your teachers will give you a bad grade if you've done something poorly. Right. Like you, you recognize that. Um, and I did have some teachers that were also tremendously supportive and you know, were at that very, you know, beginning moment of the the spark of that uh, love for writing really fostered that and, you know, pushed me in the right direction to go to, uh, you know, eventually I went to Kutztown University, which is part of the state system of higher education in Pennsylvania and one of the sister schools uh, to the university where Dave Filoni went. That's <laughs> <laughs> a fun fact. Um, and I went there for professional writing and journalism and studied not just journalism, but you know, all forms of professional writing. Because at that point, my parents had been very supportive and they continue to be very supportive of my writing. But you know, when you're on the cusp of graduating from high school, they had said to me, you know, we we think you could write books. We think you should study something a little more practical with writing so that you can get a job until you're writing some books. Uh, you know, or you can work this job and write books on the side, which is amazing foresight because that is exactly what I do now. <laughs> I have a job writing and then I write books in my free time. So well done to my parents uh, for, for seeing that they did you it, know, yeah. decades off and just going, yep, that's what she's going to need to do. So we're going to get her prepared for that. But I think it was really more, you know, seeing how important writing was to me, them making sure that I had kind of that bedrock that if if it's the writing that is so essential to to day to day for me, if if the it's the writing that's so essential to my day to day, how can they help steer me in the direction of 
a career pursuit where it can be writing based. And so that degree program really was all about that. It was finding all of these different paths, whether it was business writing or professional writing. Nope, professional writing was the name of the program. <laughs> whether it was business writing or public relations or newspaper journalism or, you know, mass media or magazines, you know, it gave you just a little bit of everything. And the thing that I fell in love with, you know, of course, was newspaper journalism and hard news in particular, which really surprised me because when I first was going through the program, I thought, yeah, maybe like features, maybe entertainment, arts and entertainment seems like a good place for me. That's stuff I like. And then I can go see an opera and write about the opera. Well, how great. And I was really surprised after I graduated, I took a job at a newspaper. And by that point, I had really started to just fall in love with that, you know, just day-to-day community journalism. And that became, you know, more of my full-time focus, you know, at that point. Because we did have some kind of arts and entertainment um, things that I could do. But for the most part, it was go to the school board, go to the council meeting, Mm -hmm. uh, somebody's been murdered. Could you go find out what happened? You know, go down to the courthouse, cover this trial. Um, There's been a fire. There's been a car crash. You know, all of those like very stereotypical breaking news stories. How did you go from that and that early, you know, the jobs at the newspaper and then getting connected with Lucasfilm and being a contributor and, and going from there? As much as I loved hard news, I could also see that I was getting a bit burned out by it. Uh, I ended up doing it for about 10 years. Mm. And probably about five or six years into it, I was starting to think, okay, the the usual trajectory for this is you start at a smaller paper, you work your way up to a mid-sized metro, you try to work your way up to a major metro. And at the time, a lot of mid-sized metros were cutting their newsroom staffs right. in half. And it was just, it was a really difficult time to be in the industry. So compounding that with just the the usual burnout that comes from that kind of work, you know, where you are meeting people either on the best day of their life, they're getting, you know, some achievement award, they're graduating from high school, or you're seeing people at the absolute worst time of their lives. Uh, You know, and those things, if you're an empathetic person at all, or compassionate person, they do tend to wear on you over time. So I think I could just feel that I was getting a little burned out and there there wasn't a lot of opportunity to you know continue pushing forward if a larger market was what I wanted to be in. And really more for sanity's sake than anything, I started to moonlight doing more magazine work and um, some entertainment journalism and just you know writing um, for sci-fi wire and some some other, websites. And that eventually led me to the Star Trek magazine and starwars.com through which, you know, was my Lucasfilm hookup. And, uh, you know, I did, I did all that, I think for about a year and a half before my job that I currently have at Lucasfilm opened up. And then I was able to, you know, extremely lucky to be able to make that jump Mm -hmm. Um, because while at the time I thought, okay, I'm probably at least going to get an interview because they know me, they had met me. I had worked Star Wars Celebration with them in person. Like the entire team was familiar with my, you know, my work ethic, what I could bring to the table, uh, you know, how I comported myself. I thought, okay, they're, 
they're probably going to at least give me an interview. I was also painfully aware that that did not mean that I was like a shoe in or that I was right. definitely going to get this job. In fact, if anything, I remember having conversations with my partner and I was just like, you know, I'm going to apply for this job because I have to apply for this job. And I really hope they at least give me an interview, but I'm probably not going to get this job. So don't worry about it yet. We are not going to have to move across the country. It's <laughs> probably fine. Um, but to his credit, he was incredibly supportive. And the whole time he was like, well, you know, we, we, we can do that. We can do that. Uh, and then of course I got the job and it became, how do we do that? <laughs> and we eventually figured it out. Uh, but that's a tremendously daunting task as well. Just uh, uprooting your entire life and moving all the way across the United States. Yeah. Speaking on the role, because I, was the role always situated with how you have it now? Because it's so interesting to me with the hosting and also the writing. It, it requires so many different facets of, of a person. And it's a very tough role to, to fill and tough shoes to fill. How did that role evolve and what did you start as? And what does your day-to-day -day look like now? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Uh, when I first came in, uh, which was in 2018, my role was specifically editorial for StarWars.com. So working as a contributor, an editor, producing stories for the news and blog. And pretty quickly, I started to just try to you know, get in, involved with other facets of just what online was up to. Mm -hmm. um, mostly because that's just my personality <laughs> that I could see they were, uh, they were doing interesting things and I just wanted to see how I could help them. You know, one of the big things I did at the beginning was really just doing more of an editing pass on videos when they had mm -hmm. on-screen text um, you know, it was something I don't know that they did it before I was there, but I, I know once I got there, you know, it was kind of one of those things I think I volunteered myself for, you know, in terms of, um, you know, just trying to make myself um, a little bit more helpful, you know, just more part of the the team overall. The Star Wars show was operating at the time and they had their hundredth episode. And one of my jobs when I was in college was doing occasional costume character work. Uh-huh. My sister, who who did it far more frequently than I did, but uh, she would she would play this character that would have a birthday party, and all of these other characters would show up at the party, and so I would be one of those characters. Um, so like once or twice a year, I would I would do costume work. But so they were planning the Star Wars hundredth, and I I remember in a meeting being like, "Well, I've done some costume character work. If if you need any help, and that is how I ended up in the Gonk, which <laughs> is a very difficult costume." to operate in just because you're kind of like blind and you're just in this big box and you can't really hear the right. director as they're yelling cues at you. And yeah. So if you rewatch that episode, that's me. I'm the gunk. There's like a record scratch that we should put in here for that one. Cause it's, it's bizarre. Um, but so I started, you know, occasionally helping out with things like that at some point, I think when we were launching resistance, they sent me out to interview some of the, talent at the the junket for that um and i had a chance to i think that was the first time i'd ever been on video that besides i know the of gonk, besides yeah besides the gong besides that was the first sharing time the screen with kidster right was kidster in that episode kidster, i want to say i think was in the back on the phone so yeah that's that's something i don't know that's a good imdb yeah. credit yeah i yeah you know what i'm gonna imdb that as soon as we're done here <laughs> i gotta update that just being like kind of a, more of a correspondent for star wars show you know very briefly 
at that moment. And it was interesting because I remember being like very nervous about it because I'm used to interviewing people, but not ending up as the story in the story at all. Sure. You know, I edit myself out completely. Exactly. Usually if it's a Q&A, uh, you might see the questions as I phrase them. But for the most part, I usually you know, rewrite everything into some kind of more of a long form feature. Um, and I had just never wanted to be in front of the camera, really. That you know, when I was in newspaper journalism, I, TV news was never something I had right. considered or thought of. So it was just kind of this weird avenue that opened up to me, you know, just by virtue of me being in the online department in general, and you know, being really eager and excited to help out in any way that I could. And so then, when they were moving the Star Wars show into a monthly space which they did for, I think, about a year. They had discussed, you know, we should probably keep the news separate, keep that weekly. We're actually in a meeting where someone said, and Kristen could host it. And for some <laughs> reason, my brain is like on improv because I was like, yes, and I would also like to co-write it. Thank you. And, you know, <laughs> I'm now I'm like, why do you just keep adding more work? Right. <laughs> why do you keep volunteering for these things? No, but really just a, a tremendous opportunity. And I was so nervous when we started it because, you know, I had never, other than those couple of, you know, small moments that I just mentioned, I hadn't really been on camera. I hadn't read from a teleprompter. We did a, a like a teleprompter test read. And I remember looking at the footage after and thinking, oh my, I have hands. Like, what, what do I do with them? Where do I place them? You know, you think about things you never you don't usually have to consider in your your day-to-day -day life when you're looking at the uh, the video <laughs> recording of yourself. So just a, a real interesting learning curve, you know, as that then became a part of my job um, and one of my duties, you know, week to week. And then we were only doing that for eight weeks before we went into lockdown in 2020. And that shifted everything in terms of how do we produce a show? How do we even get the show out the door? Uh, the first eight weeks we had, I think, three people in the room besides me running a teleprompter, running the cameras, checking the lights, you know, to to actually produce the whole thing. And then if it was edited after that. And there's a whole, you know, a whole team of people involved in that aspect. And then, you know, with lockdown, many of those episodes, it's just me. <laughs> it's right. just me having pushed some furniture aside in my living room and put it some lights and uh, you'll put the teleprompter on my computer and away we go. Uh, <laughs> but what a tremendous learning opportunity in such a really difficult time for the sure. world and such a weird time to be, you know, to exist. It's a weird time to exist in, but, um, you know, professionally, I was so thankful to have the show at that point to, you know, have something in my week to kind of, if not look forward to, at least kind of set the clocks by. You know, in terms of it, it provided a really nice scheduling cadence, um, you know, to, to keep me going. And, uh, you know, despite things being really difficult in the world at large at the time, uh, you know, we were able, I think, as a team to have some fun with it. And I did hear kind of anecdotally from some people because you know, at, at first I thought, oh, who's going to who's going to want to watch our show when the world is literally on fire right now. Um, but I heard anecdotally from, from some folks who had said, you know, it's actually really nice to have something that's regular every week, but is not the real news <laughs> is yes. not, yeah. you know, it, it gets us away from some of the things that, you know, are, we're dealing with day to day. And I thought, no, that's, 
that's valid and that's really lovely to hear because it, it it's you know it's part of why reading and you know just entertainment in general is so essential to the human condition you know it not only allows us to better understand our world by going through you know emotions and themes in storytelling but you know it provides us a, a little bit of escape when things are really tough out there um, you know, and I think Star Wars has has often been that for a lot of people, myself included. My, I'm just going on a tear now. I'm so sorry, Brandon. Uh, You're not even. It's, it's talking Baber '94. Yeah, there's talking no Baber '94. Yeah. <laughs> um, but my my sick day movie for a long time. Well, no, my sick day movie still to this day is A New Hope because I find it very soothing and comforting. And so if I am like physically just feeling like hot and garbage. And I, you know, cannot function. I cannot do any work. I don't have the focus to read usually, you know, when you're feeling that bad. Like I just want to lay on the couch or in bed and watch A New Hope again. And if I fall asleep and I wake up and they're in the trench run, it's okay because I know exactly what has come up to this point. <laughs> you know, it's very comforting. And you you can tell I'm really sick if I make it all the way through The Empire Strikes Back. Like that's just a, a really bad illness. <laughs> I've never been so sick I had to get all the way to Jedi in one clip. But that's just, that's luck. Yeah, that's fingers crossed it doesn't happen, right? Yeah. Okay, we've talked, but we haven't, we've talked a little bit writing, but we haven't talked about writing the books, which I feel like, you know, we are here, I should say, uh, episode one of Talk Vader 94 is to promote your new book that came out, The Art of the High Republic. So I, let's take a step back, and especially with your specifically Star Wars published books, which is a relatively new thing. Like, congratulations, yes. this is a huge, a huge moment. Uh, first with Skywalker, A Family at War. And then Star Wars year by year, helping with that. And then now an art of book. What have you learned having to come into this, you know, legacy of, of Star Wars writing? But then let's start with uh, Family at War and how, yeah. how you've been able to do that. So Skywalker Family at War was my first Star Wars book, my first published book. That came about during the, the height of the pandemic. I think we were maybe a couple weeks into lockdown when I first started having conversations about writing that book. And it was such a nice place to focus my attention. Right. Uh, you know, it's like what I was saying before with the show being every week and, uh, you know, having this production cadence for scripting and shooting and editing and proofing and all that. And so having a book to focus on, you know, was just another place where I could say, okay, I can't really go anywhere. I can't really do anything right now. Everything is in limbo and chaos outside, but in here... We're going to rewatch The Phantom Menace and think about what's going through Anakin's mind right there. <laughs> <laughs> so just such a nice way to spend some time. Um, I spent a lot of time when we were first talking about that book, just figuring out, you know, how do I write something that's worthy of, of that legacy? How do I write something that fits in with all of these other books that I love that are on my bookshelf. And that's a really daunting task. But, uh, you know, with Skywalker, I'm so pleased that we decided to write it in universe and make it feel like the Skywalker family is, is real. Cause I think that's just a really essential part of why star Wars is still meaningful to people, you know, almost 50 years on now where, we relate to those characters. We feel like we know them. We feel like they're real. And so giving them that 
contextualization. Um, I'm really pleased that that we went in that direction. Honestly, I outlined it in that direction, and I never really spent much time considering doing it outside of the universe because it just made so much sense to me <laughs> to treat it in that way. And that was a great jumping off point because then I could spend hours just looking at real biographies of the royal family and trying to figure out, you know, how do we, how much information would the biographer know about the Skywalkers? It's not as simple as just taking the movies and, you know, rewriting and retelling that story. It's really trying to get to the heart of some of the psychology and some of the emotion that isn't necessarily explicitly, um, you know, discussed either on screen or you know even in some of the novelizations and just such a joy I you know I love Star Wars <laughs> to be <laughs> to have the chance to write a Star Wars book was just I was over the moon uh I think I got the email from the editor and I had to like rewrite my email back like three times because I just kept putting everything in all caps because I really needed them to know how excited I was. But then I was also like, you're at like an 11 and you need to be at like a five. Right, maybe a six. Yeah, yeah. Right, I was like, you know, you can be excited, but maybe don't yell at them. They're British. They might not know that this is happy yelling. They might be like, what's wrong with her? And this is your first impression. So, you know, like just tone it down a little bit. But I was just so thrilled and I also just put a lot of my, you know, not myself, but just a lot of, I think a lot of love and energy. And, uh, you know, if you've ever had one of those projects where you think I've wanted to do this my whole life and I have no idea if I'll ever get to do it again. So I might just have to like leave it all on the mat right now. Yeah. Uh, that was what Skywalker was for me. I was, you know, not convinced that I wouldn't ever get to write another book again, but just, you know, when it happened, I thought, well, there's just no guarantees in life. I mean, it's also 2020. So you're really feeling like there's no guarantees in life. And so I just, you know, put it all on the mat. And I was so pleased with how it came out. And uh, then release day came and I was like, totally just terrified. Because somehow I'd written a whole book that I knew was going to be published and then we got to release day and that is when my you know emotional like intellectually i knew where we were going with this but that's when my emotions caught up and they were like oh no people are going to read it and now they can judge it you know like i don't know why it took all the way to release day for me to have that uh you know emotional catch up thought process but people have been really lovely and they received it well and bk who i worked with on the book invited me back to update year by year. So I thought, okay, they must have not hated me. So that's a good sign. They want to work with me again. I must not be a diva. That's good. Uh, I I will say uh, one of the amazing things with Skywalker too, was that my editor on the DK side was someone who'd worked on a lot of biographies. His name's Alistair Dougal. He'd worked on a ton of biographies and other history, like real world history books, which made him perfect for this project. But he'd also, he was not a hardcore Star Wars person. So every once in a while, we would have really funny back and forth emails where he would be trying to be a good editor and simplify something. And he would say like, I just simplified this, that Darth Maul was killed on Naboo. And I was like, no, 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 no. we can't simplify that. Here's why. And I would read like this very long email about like, I left it. I, I phrased it like that because of 
X, Y, and Z, and he's going to come back, and this is going to happen, and this is going to happen, and just wait until chapter 10, and he would come back and be like, oh, <laughs> okay, because you know, he had, of course, he's he's watched Star Wars, he's a Star Wars fan, but he's not deep in the lore with that, um, and so he didn't have kind of that that level, but I was so pleased. I worked with him on another project more recently, and he started going on about C-3PO and his creation. And I thought you learned that from me. <laughs> so uh, please, I'm here to teach people, Brandon. No, that's <laughs> good. About, about the Skywalkers. I still remember learning that Anakin built C-3PO. And that was the biggest, I feel like we don't talk about that enough. You know, there's a lot of stuff that's talked about. So I'm glad that you were doing your part to evangelize. because. <laughs> I am. And actually in the, the Target special edition, there's a whole extra chapter just about C-3PO and R2-D2 because we spent so much time with the the family and the, you know, and, and not even like there's only so much paper. I, we didn't get as deep into to Han and Padme mm -hmm. as you know, I, I would have loved to do just, you know, because of the, the word count. Um, and we wanted to keep the focus on the, you know, the, the Skywalker line, uh, not the, not necessarily the spouses. Uh, but the droids were another offshoot where I thought, oh, I'd, I would love to spend more time with this. So when we had the chance to write some extra chapters for this, the Target special edition, I was like, droids, the droids are getting a chapter. <laughs> love it. Uh, technically, <laughs> one of Anakin's sons. Like, it, you know, yes. sure. It, technically true. Okay. Let's talk about the new, the new one that has happened. <laughs> the, new. the new, the new, new, when they made the announcement that there was going to be an art of book about the High Republic. Which is like, you know, there's all, whenever any new art of book is announced in, in the Talking Bay, Talking Bay for 94 household, it is like a holiday. It is like, okay, this is a big deal. Let's really get excited. And normally we can predict, well, okay, it's going to be Mando season one. It's going to be Mando, like, we know, we know what's coming. Sure, sure. But having a art of book specifically for a publishing initiative, we have not had that in a very long time. We didn't get that for New Jedi Order. We got it for Shadows of the Empire. We, you know, like, this is great. Mm -hmm. What a great thing. And then it was like, and it was written by Chris and Baber. And it's like, wow, what an incredible combination of a bunch of things. Talk me through the process first of getting either the pitch for it or getting that assignment and then how you've been working on it to make this uh, a possible project. When I first got invited to work on the art of Star Wars The Higher Republic, I misunderstood the email and thought it was the the person emailing was asking me to help promote it on starwars.com or maybe announce it and so you know subject line is just like art of stars the high republic and i opened it and i was like yeah they're doing a, an art of the high republic that's amazing and then i read it and then i was confused and then i read it again and i was like oh oh this book hasn't been done yet <laughs> they are asking me if i want to do it that's phenomenal uh, the answer was always a hundred percent immediately. Yes. And it, you know, it goes back to what I was saying before, I think maybe with the show it, my impulse is usually to say yes first, and then to go back to my home or my office or you know, wherever it is and think, but how are we going to do that? You know, I said, yes, cause I want to do the thing, but I don't necessarily know exactly how to accomplish it when I give that exuberant. Yes. <laughs> And this was absolutely one of those cases because, you know, not only do you have the Art of Series, which 
there's the contemporary art of series, which was started with Force Awakens by Phil Shostak and has Josh Cushions and Amy Ratcliffe, you know, as as members of this particular club. And then there's, you know, the other art books that have come before, you know, in different iterations of, of Lucasfilm history. So joining that group is surreal, <laughs> a little daunting. Then you also have the High Republic being this you know, important initiative that has all these amazing authors and creators who I just, you know, really respect and adore, um, you know, and some of whom I call friends now, but, you know, at the time I think was just thinking, wow, Kevin Scott's writing Star Wars The High Republic. And when I met him, he was in our ball pit at StarWars.com. Isn't life weird? And, you know, so coming into it, knowing that this book has to be part of those two worlds, um, you know, which have separately have huge followings now, um, you know, can be a little daunting, but I was mostly just so excited to, to get to be a part of it. Cause I've been a, a really huge fan of the art of series for a long time. They are, you know, some of the, the first books I think I gathered, uh, you know, purchased, collected as I was creating a, a reference library for myself once I started writing about Star Wars more professionally, you know, as a freelancer, there's some of the things we had to lug across the country when I got my job out here. Uh, and I just refused to give up any of the 12 boxes of heavy books that I had. It was like the one thing I got rid of so much stuff in Pennsylvania, but the one thing, the hill I would die on was my pile of books. Ironically, <laughs> like I would have literally been killed on a, a massive pile of very heavy books. I have no idea if that answers your No, question. a great answer. And also great to know, because I, I also have taken boxes and boxes of books. And my wife being like, why did we do this? I'm like, we have to do this. We yes. have to, this. Also, if you've ever gotten rid of something and then had to repurchase it, and it's like four or five times more expensive now because it's out of print, you recognize the need to hoard it. Just keep it. It's fine. <laughs> you know? The actual formation of the book, it's very, yes. again, very interesting because it's not a movie or a TV show. And so the Showstack books, you can say, here's the pre-production, here's the filming, and then here's what haps, has happened for the VFX, right? It's like you kind of can relegate it in that sense. With the art of, you have obviously the summit, and then you have the production of it all, and then you have where it's going. But I'd be very interested with how much art was there really, right? Because with a movie, you're making tens of th you're making so many and i bet there's a lot obviously and it's reflected in the book but how are you sourcing it how are you laying it out and what was your vision for actually how the book was going to be produced phil Shostak was one of the first people i talked to uh when i signed on for this because i knew he knew exactly how to get one of these done <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and he is he and i are friends and colleagues and i knew he would help me mm -hmm. um and you know certainly to his credit he, he was so helpful and you know down to even you know talking through some of the ways that he's gone about collecting you know certain specific for interviews for interviewing artists mm -hmm. uh so that I could replicate the same thing which was just so helpful like I I have no idea how we would have gotten the level of insights for individual pieces without knowing that that was the, the best course of action because I don't know that I would have arrived at that same conclusion myself or I might have arrived at it too late mm -hmm. you know and then been trying to to make up ground so just you know having and and I think this goes back to year by year as well 
Sky, part of the difficulty of Skywalker Family at War was that I was doing something that was its own entry. And even though I had all of these other canon stories to follow, I didn't necessarily have uh, a blueprint beyond that. You know, I had the, the lore as the blueprint, but I didn't have the, the makeup and the organization of the book in any kind of blueprint. Mm -hmm. Year by year, so much was already set out. It was you know, easy peasy. You just, this is how you, you do it. This is the voice that's already written in. You yeah. want it to match. Um, you know, so, so much easier because <laughs> you're not really making, you're making content decisions, but you're not making, uh, you know, as many stylistic decisions because a lot of that's already been laid out in previous editions and you want it to, you know, be of that ilk and to match. And so with Art of, I knew we kind of wanted to, you know, we wanted to match the series in a way. Um, but also it can't match to your point of, you know, a production because it just doesn't follow the same schedule. So I was talking to Phil, he was giving me great pointers. And I was, of course, at the same time, reading back through all of the art of books that exist and trying to figure out, you know, which, which one of these, you know, will help me <laughs> to make the most sense of this massive pile of art that publishing had gifted me with, uh, you know, in the interim where I'm just like, this all, this all goes back to our earlier conversation too. It's like, I'm Scrooge McDuck, but instead of coins, I'm just swimming in art <laughs> and I'm enjoying it, but I'm also, you know, trying to figure out like, how are we going to organize all this? Where is the the through line? What's the thread? Um, because other than the, the summit conversations and that collaboration of, you know, writers and creators discussing things, some art being made, writers coming back together to discuss you know, things in more detail and really firm up what the High Republic can be. And then going off to their respective homes and writing phase one. Yeah. Uh, right. It's it's not so easy once they all scatter to continue following that line of the production because it's in all of, it, not only is it the five different authors at that point, but it's all the artists that they're working with, um, all of the many, many books and comics that are coming out of that so I think what, you know, what really came across very quickly was that we had to organize these things into some kind of chapter buckets that made some kind of sense. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and narratively, um, you know, knowing that this was the the prime of the Jedi, putting the Jedi up front and then letting all of the other categories, uh, you know, kind of present themselves mm -hmm. from the art that we were pulling from, um, you know, made just a, a great deal of sense. You mentioned interviewing artists. And so obviously one of the heavy hitters in the book is Ian, Ian McCaig. Already daunting in itself, uh, but him being kind of a, a formative part of at least the, the visual style and the, the look is very interesting. Again, it's the legacy of the Star Wars prequels coming into this. How did you approach interviewing him and how did that kind of seed through, through the book and how did you get connected? Yeah, I didn't realize how integral he was to the High Republic and the DNA of it and the bedrock until I was in the art Mm -hmm. you know, sifting through all of those amazing pieces and seeing just how many of them, you know, were from him. Uh, and also just one of the amazing things to me about Ian McKaig, and, and I think this probably goes for all artists, but it's something that you see very specifically with his work in this book, is that he can do a 60 second drawing and it is, you know, at a distance, you know, a, a scribbly line, but you can still see the the emotion and the figure in it. And then when he goes back and does the refined version and you sit them next to each other, you can still very clearly see, 
you know, he knew exactly where he was going with it in that first 60 seconds. And that is wild to me because that is not how my brain works in art, but it is somewhat how my brain works with formulating a, a story and organizing, you know, organizing an interview or organizing, a, you know, either an article or a book. So I can, I can't scribble it out in 60 seconds in a way that will make any coherent sense, but I think it's kind of the, it's the art equivalent to, you know, a very quick outline or, you know, just giving yourself, yourself a bunch of words that, you know, remind you to write something longer later. And then, you know, it all gets fleshed out. Um, but just wild to me to see, see that really loose art and then see the, the more finalized version and, you know, just how much of that really transfers from point A to point B. Uh, but yeah, Ian McKeg, I didn't realize truly just how integral he was to High Republic uh, till I was in the artwork. And then uh, I knew very early on that he was you know, one of the most essential upfront interviews I needed to do because of his role in creating that you know, very blue sky you, the authors were still really figuring out who the characters were, but Ian was just drawing up some really amazing possibilities for them to either utilize or, you know, jump off, use as a jumping off point. And I was a little intimidated, I think, sure. like, like you were mentioning before, um, with interviewing him because it's Ian McKay. <laughs> he's, he's, he designed Darth Maul. He created the look of Padme Amidala. Um, you know, he's he's worked on so many things in the Star Wars universe. Previously, he's he came back for the sequels. I think he did some concept art for Solo, if I'm not mistaken. And so he's just been such. And actually, I think he they were working on the they were working on the special editions when he was first working with Lucasfilm. So he's just he's touched every era. He's been a part of it in some way. Um, he's so talented. And so it, it can be really difficult to, to go in and interview a person like that. And also someone who's been working in it so long, you know, they've done a bunch of interviews. So you want to make sure that you're asking them some questions they've never been asked before. So they're not bored, but then he was just the nicest person yeah. and he made it so easy to the point that, you know, not only was he just really easy to talk to, but we would meander on all these really long, interesting conversations uh, about things beyond, you know, beyond the art in the higher public, beyond art in general, and just, you'd be talking about life. And then we would realize that we, it had been an hour and a half and we had other stuff we had to do, both of us, <laughs> and that we couldn't just talk all day. And then we would have to set another time to, to complete the interview. And I think we did three interviews in total because we just kept running out of time. And I still had all of this other art I wanted to talk to him about. Um, but he's just su such a great, such a great interview subject, but, but more so, I think just a great person to talk to. <laughs> and, and I was just really floored that, you know, someone of that cat, I, I think it's it, my experience. It's funny. My experience with, with interviewing Ian is very similar to the experience that Mike Siglain, I think had with even asking Ian to be part of the higher public in the first place where, you know, I kind of went into the first interview you're like, oh, it's Ian McKay. He might only have like 20 minutes. We got to speed through this. How are we going to get this done? And then in the first 20 minutes, we didn't talk about any art. We just talked about life yeah. <laughs> and we, you know, we eventually meandered over to the actual work, but I was just so pleased with how 
a lot of the those amazing quotes to worked in the book, whether they were with the art that we were discussing in the moment, and really gave some great insights to what he was thinking and what his artistic thought process was. Or even just if they're insights, like he he made a really good um, he made a really good point about dealing with the things that scare us, but dealing with them, you know, in the course of fiction, so that we can talk about them more freely. And, you know, it's okay, because when people get scared, it's like, no, no, but it's just the story. It's, it's just the story. It's not real life. It's okay. Um, and I thought, what an amazing and profound insight that absolutely has to go into the book. <laughs> right. Yeah. As you mentioned, those sketches, those early loose sketches of Ian's, I think are my favorite parts of the book, because they are, I don't think in like the prequel art of books, and I could be wrong, that there's many examples of him using that style so it's very interesting to see with him and then you're like oh yeah there's the you know drinker or whatever you're like oh there it is like he did it but i don't think those types of pieces ended up in the prequel books and i don't think those types of pieces if i'm if if i'm understanding correctly from what he was telling me i don't think those types of pieces even necessarily ended up being like turned in as anything mm -hmm. uh during the course of the prequels uh you know that would have been something more like a napkin sketch for himself to remind himself later and right. the, you know, more like the equivalent of like a sticky note, not necessarily something that would, you know, end up in, in the, the prequel art books. Um, but I think for, for the timeline that they had with this one, because he was only at the Lucasfilm headquarters for two days originally, right. and he was just like banging out some rough ideas. And so, you know, some of them are those 60 seconds, some of them are 10 minutes, um, you know, some of them he went back home and and did you know much more uh, detailed drawings of um, you know. But I think a lot of that was just it was moving at such a breakneck speed. Where you know my understanding, I wasn't around for it, but my understanding with the prequels is you know they would have had a, a lot more time to work on those things right. individually day to day um, rather than you're here for forty eight hours. How many drawings can you make? Right. Yeah. <laughs> oh, so this brings me kind of to uh to wrap up a little bit now what your favorite piece of art in your book is which yes. you can think about it. you can what is your yeah. favorite piece of art concept Ooh. art for star wars period like is there one that you're like there it is that's my guy yeah the one that springs to mind is the the droids arriving and it's the ralph mccrory piece that i think was the first piece that was created the 3po the one that anthony daniels talks about and he's like yes yes yeah uh and i think it's that one for me because when the macquarie book came out i bought it obviously <laughs> and uh, one of my friends who works in publishing had picked up this like postcard promoting it and it was that mm -hmm. piece and I loved it so much that I framed the postcard and had it in my office in Pennsylvania. Uh, and we just look at it. And so that's probably also why it springs to mind first when you ask me that question, because, you know, not only is it that quintessential, it's on, you know, it's on the case for that book too. Like right. I've stared at that piece for so many hours. Uh, you know, even if I wasn't staring at it directly, like it's just, you know, in my peripheral constantly, but it's also just so evocative of, for me, what Star Wars is at its best. You know, it's some images, but it's not definitive. It feels very intimate because you're right up close with that golden droid. 
who isn't quite C-3PO because it's concept mm -hmm. art, but it will be C-3PO one day. Um, but there's also so much happening in the backdrop with the R2-D2 unit and with the crashed pod and with some of those tracks in the sand. And then you pull back further and there's also that mountain range. And so it's somehow both telling you a story and just starting an adventure. It's somehow both very intimate and also clearly shows you that there's so much more to this world and it just keeps going on forever and ever. And, you know, I think that's what I love about that piece that it feels like it captures all of those essential emotions to me about Star Wars, Star Wars storytelling, the Star Wars galaxy and the endless possibilities with it. But also I am just a huge C-3PO fan. <laughs> so I don't think that's any coincidence that just like Anthony Daniels, I just feel like that droid in that concept art is doing kind of a little bit of a come here, come up, come hither, um, inviting me in. Yeah. So I think of all time. Yeah. That's a good one. Like if I could only have one piece of concept art to look at from Star Wars for the rest of my life, I would could easily pick that and be happy forever. But there's so many good ones. Yeah. As you know, <laughs> if I can do my second favorite. Yes, you're allowed. You're all allowed. My second favorite is the Athorian sketch. Oh, yeah. It was part of the, I think it was the Star Wars Identities exhibit rotation. It was mm -hmm. one of the, the pieces that was hanging in that collection. But it just tickles me to no end that there's like a little bit of text on it to tell you a little bit more about this alien. One of them is that their language is like through yeah. tying knots. Right. I just, I love that weird little quirky detail. Yeah. Wait, if I can pick a third one. Okay, yes. Yeah, no, you're allowed. <laughs> <laughs> Talking Baver 94 is now just my favorite art. Um, hey, this, that's why they pay us the big bucks around here. That's what people <laughs> want to hear. Uh, my third one, if I can do maquettes count. Do we, are we counting maquettes? We can count maquettes. We're, uh, we're, that, that, we're uh, making the rules now, allowed. Brandon. Yeah, yeah, we're allowed. Then my third piece. So in my mind now, like, you're not only asking me when my favorites are, but you're like letting me go shopping and having me hang all these things up in my house now. Skywalker Ranch is going to bring either here you go here's the McCoy original <laughs> here's, here's the Ron Car original here's all this right like you, you whatever you want right and if you want this like, cat, no, that's and, but funny. also I mean we can I can give Tom Spina the timestamp, right and <laughs> and he'll he'll crank well, it out in a year Tom Spina's gonna love this part then because my third one no surprise to anyone who's followed me on the internet in the last six months but it is the Max Rebo maquette very good. I, I just I, love that. I, I, I would red pick it up. I'm, I'm scared of breaking it. Uh, uh, I, I know, it. right? Yes. I'm so gentle with it, but also, uh, I, I just, I, I love the the replica version of that. But, uh, yeah, I would love to see the the original of it too. I feel like you could have you have a little bit of sway that if you were like, I, I need to go and check it out real fast. You could. I feel like that's like, a good. Uh, for it's news what, reasons, I'm gonna. News reason, uh, uh, I mean, think about the social engagement there. Like, if you're like, here's me with the original. Yes, here's me in hashtag Rabuti. <laughs> it's us. I have mine displayed with the signature plaque, but then he is flipped around. It is. It, it's, As it's, it should be. Yeah, yeah. That Tom Spina, that Tom Spina maquette line is the worst thing that has ever happened to me. It is. <laughs> it is truly because it's, it's a little bit higher. Of a, like I collect, you know, books are. Fifty dollars, like great. I, I can buy a book, but this is a little bit above the price range. I normally go for an individual collectible, despite what it may seem on the internet. It is, you know, it is pushing it, and that it is now occurring at such a frequency. Right? He's like, oh yeah, every three months, well, there'll be a new maquette. And I'm like, that's great, but also like, <laughs> yes. Well, and 
to compound it for me, uh, I also live in San Francisco where it's not like the housing is enormous. And right. so I'm just like, I have to be so careful about what I am buying and what I'm devoting space to. Like I can't buy everything right. that I want to buy. Uh, but that one was just a automatic. I, I absolutely need it. <laughs> I yes. have a heart. And, you know, so in, in terms of my favorite pieces of, of concept art, you know, I, I got to put that up there. because are, That's all, all good answers. All good you know answers. what? Actually, I'm sorry. I'm putting Rabuti above the Athorian now. Athorian. If I had to pick Macquarie Droids, then Phil Tippett's Max Rebo Maquette, then the Athorian. Sorry. No, Final it's okay. answer. It's okay. Uh, what is your favorite piece of art in the book? In your book, you're putting this together like, this is great. Yeah. What's the one? That's so hard because it's like uh, choosing your favorite child. Right. <laughs> can I pick two again? You can pick two. You can, you're allowed to pick yes. two. Okay. The two that... No, wait, I'm sorry. Can I pick three again? Talking Baver 94, no rules. It's, it's Talking just... Baver 94 allows you to pick three favorites. Right. This Talking is... Baver 94, really, really tight, tough rules, but... <laughs> A little it. looser on the Baver on the Baver side I mean, of things. No, yeah, talking Baver, you can have three. Um, so I, I will say, I adore the Jedi Texas Ranger from Grant Griffin. Mm -hmm. I just think that's so fun. I, I love the story possibilities that are opened up by it, but I, I'm also just really delighted by the story that we shared with that piece in the book where it really, it goes back all the way to just the DNA of Star Wars. Right. Um, and I think that's just, it's a lovely way to encompass that and, and just how much care the folks who are creating the High Republic put into making sure that this is all very authentic to all the Star Wars storytelling that has come before, especially considering that these stories on the timeline in universe actually do come before. So they need to to merge perfectly with with the storytelling that, um, you know, will happen in, in future in universe. It gets so confusing for people who are not deep fans <laughs> when you're like in, it, it happened before, but it's actually happening later, but it, they have to, to match up with what will happen, but it's happened in the seventies for us. It's all very confusing, <laughs> but you know, so Jedi Texas Rangers, one of my favorites. Oh, I'm going backwards. That's my third. That's three. Okay. Second, I'm going to say uh, the Ian McKaig, it's in the epilogue and it's one of the sketches that he did to answer the question, what scares the Jedi? Okay. Yes. It's so creepy. <laughs> it's uh, every time I look at it, it, you know, it just, it evokes a very visceral reaction and feeling Which to one? me. Yeah. Guy on the right. It's the guy on the right officer. Yeah. <laughs> it's that guy. Page, yeah. Page two, two, one for those following along at home. Yes. On page uh, 21, scary uh, there's something that somehow, to me, perfectly captures, like, my own nightmares, which is funny because it's based on, you know, Ian McKaig's, Ian McKaig bases so many interesting things off of, you know, his own nightmares and fears, um, you know, famously with Darth Maul and now, you know, with, with that guy. <laughs> on page, is it 221, you said? 221. Turn to page 221 to get freaked out. <laughs> And then my my top pick, because, you know, again, if we're pretending that I can have all of these pieces 
framed in my house. Yes. You want that framed right. in your house. The, I would love you it. You want 221 oh, well, in your house. Wait, no, no, right? not 221, yeah, actually. I don't know, man. But you know what? That would be the kind of thing. Uh, when I was a kid, we had this book on dinosaurs. And for some reason, the cover scared me. And we would put it in the closet, like on the tippy top shelf and like push it away. Mm-hmm. And I would 100% do that with that. I would frame it, but then put it in a closet and just keep it really far away and just not ever look directly at it. But then uh, one of my favorite pieces, and I'm going to say it's my top favorite for right now, is it's the the Starlight Beacon piece by uh, Pascal Blanchet and Gonzalo Kenny. Mm -hmm. And I hope I have pronounced their names correctly. And I'm sorry to them if I didn't, because I've only had to write them. I haven't had to say them yet. But it's this beautiful blue-toned starlight beacon, and it is the piece that ended up being underneath the slipcover mm. for the book. Um, and I am a person who, when I read a book that's a hardcover and has a slipcover, I have to remove the slipcover and put it somewhere safely. Oh, so really? It's or ruined in any way. Part of it's me. Part of it's living with a cat that sometimes pages through things mm. violently and has has torn some book covers and has eaten one Mike Chen. Mike Chen was delighted by this, but he ate the cover off of one of his paperbacks and I felt mm. kind of bad about it. So I protect all of my book covers in a, in okay. a safe... That's a good answer. Show. That's a good answer. I just don't uh, open my books past a certain... Um... <laughs> What's the word? I just, oh, I, yes, I, you protect the spines. I, I protect spines, and so that also protects yes. the covers um, indirectly. Yes, but, but so. we do the hard covers then because it's because the slip cover's separate. Well, actually, again, I, I I really protect books and uh, to a worrying extent, but with hard covers, <laughs> I really do like using the front flap or the back flap when you get halfway through, but to mark the, the page. The mark, yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's that is that is nice, and then it does it distorts it a little bit, right? Anyway. But then over time, when you fix it all back up, it's fine. That's what I've told myself. You protect books, Brandon. You distort their covers. I know. I know. I really... uh, Anyway, (laughs) it's a tough battle that I I face internally. But but that is a beautiful piece. Inside the book, this this picture, this piece on the Starlight Beacon um, was one of the ones that, even though I I was not the designer on the book, and I would never want to be the designer on a book like this, because that is not how my brain works. Yes. I implicitly trust the designers, but this was one of the pieces that I think I'd marked off. Like, how big can we make this? <laughs> can we make this a full two-page spread? Because it is gorgeous. And I just, and it reminds me so much of Cloud City and, and mm-hmm. you know, again, that that Star Wars DNA of all of the, the artists looking back to Ralph McQuarrie and saying like, okay, how can we how can we manifest this in our own work now and make it all feel like it's all part of that same galaxy. But also I have been staring at this piece constantly then because that book has been on my coffee table without its cover for days now. And so I'm, it's so probably, it's like the droids now. It's like, not only do I love it, but it's also, it's, it's constantly in my peripheral. And so it's getting a lot of, uh, it's getting a lot of space in my brain. As I stare at it again and again. The starlight beacon where nothing ever goes wrong. Nothing ever could possibly go wrong. Everyone's so happy there. They don't even have any fire extinguishers. They don't need them. <laughs> who, who, there would be, yeah. <laughs> that was what, so dark. Phil Noto does something like he scratches something in my brain whenever he, ever, like all of his Marvel covers from back in the day. And then when he's doing all the High Republic stuff, that's really what sold me on it. Honestly, I was like, oh, like this 
is very i really love just how he draws and 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 how it all looks and so having him do star wars and having do star wars of stuff that we had never seen on screen is very it's very yes it's very cool yeah well and i just love how you know you're not alone in that because i i i love the stories where uh you know phil noto creates early, early concept art. And then, you know, one of them is this lineup of nine Jedi for a story that is not the High Republic story, but is a different idea that I think Charles Soule had come up with. And the five authors are looking at that going, all right, that Trandoshan Jedi, we've never seen a Trandoshan Jedi. Let's create a Trandoshan Jedi. And, uh, you know, Orla is in that lineup very clearly and almost, uh, you know, barely changes, I think, from that very early concept art of, you know, for Phil Noto, just nine very different Jedi into the, the character that she becomes. So, yeah. So a lot of people, I think, <laughs> see that Phil Noto art <laughs> and great. it scratches something in their brain yeah. um, and, and sends them on on the path. Uh, I, I also just really love the Phil Noto piece where um, it almost has like that vampiric uh, person in the background mm-hmm. and then Eve with her very short hair uh, in the foreground, um, you know, again, very, very early concepts. So it, it's, I think it's kind of Kiev before there was a Kiev, right. but you know, really gives you a, a sense of what, what this era could be and what this era will look like. Uh, just cool. so talented. And also I can't say enough. I didn't say anything yet. <laughs> I can't say enough good things about the the various artists who've been involved in all of the comics. Phil Noto's done a number of the the covers since he did that early concept art, but also Harvey Tolabau, uh, Ariel Andito, Nick Brokenshire. There's way too many to name, um, but they're all just so amazing at what they do. And also Grant Griffin. <laughs> Grant's crazy. I, well, yeah. He How, is, well, no, I did mention him a little bit because he, he did the, the Jedi Texas Ranger right. piece. But he I don't is. think I mentioned him by name. And, you know, he, of course, provided the cover art to this book, was so game in allowing, you know, he and the the editors and the designers were so game in, in allowing me to, you know, come in and, you know, wish list who I would love to see on the cover. Mm. Uh, Yoda at the very top of the list. Mm-hmm. You know, as I realized that all the other books in the High Republic Phase One, Yoda was not on the cover of any of them. Right. And uh, so I immediately was like, Dibs, Yoda's on mine now because he's in this. <laughs> right. I want a book that has Yoda on the cover and my name on the cover. And this was, of course, before I knew the foreword would also be by Kathleen Kennedy. Uh, so now sharing space with, with that a, Yeah, name. just a small, yeah, she's you know. a newcomer, newcomer to the to the world of, of film right. and entertainment. Yes. But yeah. uh, yes, but but Grant Griffin, you know, throughout, uh, he does some, uh, some amazing pieces. I've been a fan of his work since he, I think he started with us with uh, Star Wars Myths and Fables by George Mann a few mm-hmm. years back. And just did these beautiful painterly pieces, which reminded me of my favorite book growing up, which was Rumpelstiltskin by Paulo Zielinski, mm-hmm. which, you know, again, is just these beautiful pages and pages of oil paintings and, you know, telling the story of, of Rumpelstiltskin, but, you know, perfect for myths and fables. But then, you know, I was just so utterly delighted that he was able to, you know, not only that he contributed so much inside of this book, um, 
both with his own original pieces, but also, you know, sometimes in collaboration with people like Ian McKaig mm-hmm. uh, for Chancellor Lena So, but then also that he was available, willing, and able to create this golden cover <laughs> for yeah. us, which is just phenomenal. Every, I just, I want them to make prints of all of his stuff. Yeah. It'd be great. It'd be really great. Because yes. he does creepy, his, his, when he does creepy, it's very, it's very <laughs> good. It's very, very good. When he does creepy, it's very creepy. Yes. My my kingdom for a poster print of both this cover and the Matt Ferguson cover for Skywalker Family at War. Just I just want to hang both of those like full as big as they'll make them. Uh, I feel like you can two- get those files. I, th- I feel like you can just you have probably the AI file on an email, right? I'm sure they're like, here's the cover, and you just remove the text and you go to Kinkos, you blow it up, and you put it in a frame. No one will know. Just sure, put it in your house. Sure, yeah. no one will know. Who's gonna know? Oh, no. no one will know. Just don't put it in the background of a This Week in Star Wars and you're fine. I mean, like, really, you're fine. Right, yeah. How will they know? How, um, how will they know? How will they know other than I've told them on this podcast? <laughs> hey, this can be, I can delete, this is. This might be the part that gets cut out. This, yeah, who know. knows? Who knows? Um, okay. We are, we are wrapping up the first episode of Talking Baby 94. Where can people find you for those who are listening and are like oh this person i like star wars but for some reason i don't follow any star wars social media i don't know what's going on what's going on could happen you can find me on twitter and instagram at Kristen baver um, and every thursday on all of the frequencies as the host of this week in star wars throughout the week contributing to starwars.com news and on your bookshelves now with Skywalker Family at War, Star Wars Year by Year, World of Reading, Galaxy of Creatures, what up? And <laughs> Star Wars, The Art of... Nope, messed it up. And <laughs> The Art of Star Wars, The High Republic, out now. Love it. Easy. Look at that. Easy. So much. Yeah, all so the places. Much. And next year, the list will be even longer. <laughs> yes. Upcoming projects. But we'll have to have you on for... Uh, the hundred, hundred objects and timelines. Timelines is going to be crazy. I really, I really don't know how to wrap my head around that one, and I'm sure that's been a, a tough conversation for all of y'all. But uh, I cannot wait to see that one. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm excited for both of those, um, and I'm hoping when we get to talk more about timelines and when we when timelines actually is is coming out that we're able to do some promotions as a group or as yeah. you know different smaller groups. Um, Cause the five of us just have a, a really good time. <laughs> uh, it, although I will say if you try and put all five of us on a single podcast, it's big chaos energy. Yeah. So <laughs> it might be too much for one. Time. Maybe just like, okay, let's see what happens. Who cares? Let's just, let's free just, for all. Yeah. Free for all. what could happen? Yeah. Well, and it's funny. Cause like with that one, uh, I know we we don't want to get into that for for this one, but yeah, save uh, it for the next episode. Save it for funny. the next yeah. episode. Yeah. Talking Neighbor ninety four episode two. This was great, Kristen. Thank you for joining me on this inaugural episode of Talking Neighbor ninety four. Congratulations on the book. It is wonderful. Welcome to the Art of Club again. Another thing that I collect. Thank you. I hope to see more. We'll see. We'll see what's going on. Twenty twenty three. We'll talk again very very much. Thank you, Brandon. Thank you for having me. And uh, and I feel most welcome to the Art of Club.
Thank you so much again to Kristen for being the inaugural guest of Talking Baver 94, as well as just being an incredible guest, great writer, and even greater example. You can get your copy of The Art of Star Wars The High Republic from Abrams Books wherever books are sold. More episodes of both Talking Baver 94 and our sister podcast, Talking Bay 94, are coming in the new year. If you're enjoying this, please head to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to these episodes and leave us a five-star rating and review. That's all for now. Until next episode, stay tuned. Leave that five-star review. May the Force be with you.